Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Strategies Used by Small Business Leaders to Obtain Government Contracts and Subcontracts. And joining me from the Washington, D.C. area, a gentleman who has the inside track on this, I believe, Dr. Damien C. Dunbar. Dr. Dunbar, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, my pleasure. The The fact that you're in the Washington area and are talking about government contracts uh, gives me an, uh, a little bit of a clue that perhaps uh, there's a reason why this book was written. Share that with my listeners. Well, there's a couple of reasons why the, um, that the book was re- written. Um, first of all, I'm going to give you a little bit back my background. Sure. From Savannah, Georgia. Um, went to basic training in 1989. I retired in 2009. I was financed the entire 20 years. Uh, retired in 2009, and I've been working for the government as a budget analyst for the past 10 years. Um, now I'm the policy chief for Treasury. Wow. One of the reasons I wrote the book was it was an adaptation of my dissertation. I completed my doctorate degree in August of 2019, mm. and I wanted. Um, and when you do a dissertation, it only reaches. They only put it in um, databases, so it doesn't get out to the public. Right. <laughs> So I wrote the book for it to get out to the public, and I use Facebook and other social media means to, uh, along with my website for my business, which I'll mention later, to uh, kind of push the book out there and to help um, these small business leaders that may not know the the, the simple the simple practices that they can implement to give themselves a greater chance to um, obtain work with the government. Well, that's that's a fantastic desire, and uh, certainly one that would confuse me if I was a small business owner and wanting to get co- contracts with the government. I uh, have uh, run into some red tape with a another issue in my family. I have a daughter that was born in Canada, and uh, for some reason, her parents—that's me and my spouse—we forgot to register yeah. register her and. And uh, she came over at three months old, and she's a lot older than that now, married, has a couple of kids and all that. And we finally woke up and decided uh, maybe we ought to check into this. It took us three, three and a half, four years to finally get it unscrambled. And uh, fortunately, she is now a U.S. citizen. Uh, my wife is a U.S. Yeah, my wife is a U.S. citizen, and uh, you know all my other family members are. I just uh, I'm I'm the renegade. I I tell people that I have a wetsuit. I just swam over from Canada, but um, <laughs> actually I've been here as a permanent resident for most of my adult life. Now the government contracts are are, are they complicated? How do you, how do you outline it in your book? You have 170 pages. Uh, was it complicated for you to write this? Uh, were you taking notes in the historical? Um, uh, aspects of your of your job, your career, or how how did this come about? It's a combination of everything. But one of the main sources were the individuals, the small business leaders that I interviewed, those that were successful in contracts and subcontracts. And um, conversely, I talked to people that you know they had been trying to obtain a contract with the government, but for some reason. They didn't. They just did not. So I had to kind of do that research as well as um, looking at a lot of peer-reviewed articles to kind of come up with a synopsis on why what was the differences between the two groups. And I believe I came up with that. Well, it's beautiful, uh, Doctor Dunbar. How how long did it take you to get everything in writing where you wanted to share it? 
probably four or five hours every day for two about two years. Ah, well, that's a piece of cake, a walk in the park. You spent 30 days in in, in military and uh, in government service. Uh, that that was easy then compared to that, I would think. Uh, you, did you come across anything that uh, I'm sure you've uh, at least anecdotally run into some challenges and some um, obstacles for those who are trying to get contracts? Did you run into anything on the solution side that was uh, maybe a surprise to you? Well, here, here's a here, there, one issue is that there's a lot of information out there. There's um, and the the government they have the Small Business Administration website, but there's other websites that you can go to. So I think they would do do it would serve the small business leader better by kind of consolidating those websites. And mm-hmm. in addition to the consolidation to obtain the information, they have. Um, they don't really go into the specifics on, okay, here's what you need. Here's the paperwork you need to fill out. Here's what you need to get to obtain work to be able to listen to that word, to be able those right. words, to be able to obtain work. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get it. So what you have to do is you have to say, well, what's the best um, path that I call process that I can use to increase the likelihood of obtaining these contracts. And that's what took a long time in the book to get to that point to kind of dig, dig, dig. It was a deep dive. And it, I think I, I came up with that, that answer, and that's in the book. Wow. Those since, answers in the book. Yeah. yeah, since this is your doctoral uh, dissertation, at least it was the springboard from that, uh, is this the total dissertation, or is this an expansion of uh, what you discovered? No, it's, it's, it's the total dissertation. <laughs> wow. That uh, I that that's why I don't have a doctorate after my name. I'm guessing it, unless unless one is awarded to me because I'm a nice person, I I don't think I'm going to ever get one. Now the <laughs> the, um, the 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 length of time certainly was uh, was uh, commendable that you stuck it out. Of course, if you're going to get your degree, you you you've got to submit a a dissertation. Uh, was there any particular uh, individual that you had in mind when you wrote this? I know that it's a, a in general census. Uh, written for the small business owner. Did you, in your mind, think, well, I'm going to write this as though I'm talking to George's uh, uh, you know, pizza shop or, or whoever, whomever? Uh, did any of that come into <laughs> no, the writing? I, no, I had. Um, it's, it's funny, and I would advise anybody, anyone that's working on a um, doctorate to do something that, that you understand and you have experience in. Hmm. Within uh, my my thirty years with the government, I worked as I worked on. It's called a set aside program, where the government tells these agencies, "Hey, X amount of your money has to go to these small business set aside programs." And I was the guy to put the money into those programs and also work with the program manager for small business. Hmm. So I kind of knew what that were, and the answer that I couldn't get was when I asked them, "Well." What's the driver for the government of um, ensuring that these small businesses get these contracts? Like I couldn't get that answer. Mm. So that's what that was the foundation for my research question to obtain my dis- my um, doctorate. That was it. Uh, using experience as a strategic tool, you have listed several things there. And is that referring yeah. to you, or is that referring to business in general? That's that's in general. Okay. Um, I, I I think there's three things that you have to look at. And I found this out through my research and peer-reviewed articles. I think you have to have experience in that particular industry. 
I think you um, you need to be educated on uh, um, the certain factors within that industry that are like, for example, if you're IT, cloud, cybersecurity, you, you need to have that education, you need to have the certification. But the most important thing, I believe, out of all three is networking. Yes. Well, I, I think you need to, you know, the, you know, success in a business is, you know, you, you have to be vocal and you, you can't sit on the sideline because the government's not going to come knock on your door and say, hey, you, you want this, um, you want this contract, so you have to network. And eighty percent of those that I interviewed that were successful, it was because of a prior um, relationship that they established um, earlier in their career. Incredible. Now you have uh, again penned this in uh, just over just under two hundred pages, one hundred and seventy pages or so. Uh, is there because it's small business? I'm in looking at some of the contents of your book. It's very detailed. And uh, from my perspective, because I'm not a detailed guy, it would not be for the faint of heart. Is there is there some, I won't say crib notes or some inex- inexcusable, easy ways for them to understand your content and get things done? Yes, I would. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I would just look at Chapter 3 okay. and the chart um, in Chapter 3, which tells you um, I had five um, small business leaders that I interviewed, and I crossed, I, I connected, there's like probably 13 or 14 areas, and I connected which areas that they all had in common. Oh, so that's just a one-page review. Well, <laughs> you can kind of look at that page, whether it was education, experience, whether it was resources, whether it was whatever, that chart um, shows you exactly how all of their success stories kind of crossed each other well fantastic uh that would be the page i would probably live with or live in when i bought the book now um are there other <laughs> there are other books that probably deal with this uh, material or this topic uh, maybe not the same way yours did what makes yours different well i can tell you that there is almost at or at the time that i started this process there was nothing out there on really on subcontracting there was no doctoral research, mm. really, that talked about subcontracts. And there was a lot of stuff on contracting, but it's, there wasn't a lot of – during your um, doctoral research, you have to use peer-reviewed articles. Um, and there were just, like, not a lot of peer-reviewed articles. There was the Small Business Administration, but there was not a lot of articles. So I wanted mine to be something that both contractors and subcontractors could look at and pull out the information contained to – like I said, increase their likelihood to obtain subcontracts. So the whole subcontract piece, mine is probably one of the few that's there, to be honest with you. Very good. Now, is that the most challenging part of putting this together, doing that research and uh, assembling it in one spot? Yes, it is. When you don't have – if I was working on something dealing in medical – Field. There's a lot of stuff dealing with, you know, with medical field, a lot of stuff dealing with IT. But if you're just talking about at the macro level, I want, I want to pull out this information for contracts, subcontracts. There's not a lot of peer-reviewed articles on that. And that's what the, um, like, 85% of your resources that you use for your dissertation have to be peer-reviewed articles. Mm. So I had 300 and, 300 and I think, 16 um, references. So that's a lot in to, to, you know, spend the hours upon hours upon hours just trying to, research, you know, recent, and those those 85% have to be within 
five years from the date of publication. Incredible. So it, it was it was just tough. It was just tough. It was just tough to really find something on subcontract other than keep to have kept referencing the Small Business Administration. Well, incredible, you know? incredible accomplishment for sure. And looking at the footnotes and the other content of your book, this is a book that will definitely be one that small business leaders uh, will want to gravitate toward, and especially that page that you recommended or, or highlighted that uh, really breaks it down into yeah. to what you need to do to get it done. Uh, this is a, a, an interesting book of 170 pages for those who are in business and uh, want to obtain government, pro, uh, government contracts. And the title, again, is Strategies Used by Small Business Leaders, to obtain government contracts and subcontracts. And again, you highlighted five particular businesses that are in the book. They're included and their journey. The author, Dr. Damien C. Dunbar, D-U-N-B-A-R, a veteran published book. Sir, where do my listeners get a copy of your book? They can go to drdamiendunbar.com or they can go to Ex Libris publishing x-l-i-b-r-i-s publishing and they can just google damian dunbar my book will pop up they can also go to amazon fabulous and their local bookseller if they can't uh, locate it anywhere else they can go to a local bookseller and say listen i'm uh, i've heard this this book on strategies for small business leaders and i want to get a copy of it and give your name and they will also be able to obtain it that way as well is there another book in the future or are you uh, done getting doctorate degrees Oh, well, um, I'm glad you said that. I started my own business Wow. Um, on consulting. So um, called Small Business Strategy Solutions, um, small ba- smallbusinessstrategysolutions.com. So the information that I get from this business, I'm going to add uh, maybe a second edition or an add-on to my book. Because what we do is we have small businesses with clearance issues, strategic planning, and also like web design and hosting services so the information i get from them i will use to do a a second part to my book fantastic well i congratulations not only on your history but uh, what you're accomplishing right now and the title of this book again is strategies used by small business leaders to obtain government contracts and subcontracts thank you dr dunbar for joining me today and sharing your story And thank you. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcast. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at Scott at toginetradio.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at T-O-G-I-N-E-T-R-A-D-I-O dot com.
Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Unique. It's titled Boys' Secrets and Men's Loves, a memoir. And joining me from the New York City area in the United States of America is author David A.J. Richards. Professor Richards, thank you for, the, for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you have authored over 20 books. Uh, this is just another in a series. This one, 374 pages, uh, talking about yep. your life and a- absolutely uh, uh, observations about uh, culture and other things. Uh, share with my yep. listeners the background. Why the, this title and uh, what is the main ingredient here? Well, uh, I've been working for many years with the uh, feminist psychologist Carol Gilligan, who has... Uh, a new take on uh, human development, uh, arguing that there is a very different form of development of uh, girls and women than than boys and men, and that it's informed by the different ways in which men and women are initiated into patriarchy. Uh, and working with Carol led me to think about my own development uh, from boyhood into manhood and the effect of patriarchy on me, and that led me to reflect in turn on whether this was a phenomenon uh, which other American boys and men experienced. And uh, that led me to uh, the argument of my book that, in fact, is broadly shared among uh, certainly a lot of American artists and uh, uh, who uh, deal with the same problems I dealt with in somewhat different forms. And uh, some, you know, very important uh, moral leaders uh, in our culture, uh, moral and political leaders in our culture, in, including, you know, for, ex- for example, uh, James Baldwin, uh, a great leader uh, in the civil rights movement, and uh, as I argue at the end, uh, Barack Obama, who I think uh, struggled with very much many of the same themes I and other men struggle with, uh, and in order to be... Yes, in, in order to become the ethical, political, creative figures that they are, right? And uh, and and basically, your I, I want to say your argument, but your 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 viewpoint is that uh, maybe men are a little bit overpowering in their the way they approach life. Would that be a way to describe it? Uh, they, well, they I, or how would you well, say? Well, I think that very early on, men are uh, much earlier than girls and women are really bullied into a sort of. Uh, view of what it is to be a boy and man. Mm. man. And if, if they deviate in any way, they're really bullied uh, to deny it. And that creates a kind of secret self, because no one is a, is a, is a gender stereotype. We're all human. Absolutely. And there's, a lot of com- there's a lot of complexity uh, uh, in, a, in a human life. And, and men pay a cost for, uh, you know, holding to themselves what I call their secret self. Uh, mm. Uh, and they pay a price for that. I think uh, men are very damaged by patriarchy, as women are. Well, in, and, my, uh, yeah, in my observations, you know, they're, especially here in Texas, I'm in Texas, and, and you know sure. down in Texas, uh, football's a big deal. And if, sure. uh, if a guy thinks he needs to be macho, he feels like he needs to go out and bang his head against some other uh, citizen yes. or, or a brick wall in order to uh, show off his masculinity. And yeah. I, I personally have never subscribed to that. I, I'm not a, unfortunately, I'm not a sports fan. I, this, that's just a, mm-hmm. a, a rare uh, personality, in it, personality trait in itself. I, I like yeah. sports, but I don't love them. And it doesn't, to me, indicate, uh, you know, your, your masculinity if you uh, yes. do, do not. Uh, want to go out and, and uh, you know, 
knock yourself out in a, a game of football, although it's, it may yes. be entertaining to you. Uh, that's very much what I have in mind, that kind of bullying uh, into a narrow conception of what it is to be a man. Uh, I mean, why, you know, why not be more interested in the arts or something of that sort? Something Absolutely. In, uh, uh, as I think many European men are. Uh, why confine one's psyche in such a narrow and confined way? That's the kind of question I'm trying to ask. And I think it's actually, I mean, I have my own experience. You know, I'm a gay man, and I was, uh, you know, really, really uh, bullied in many ways. But I think it's a much more common phenomenon uh, than people think at first sight. It's, very, it's broadly shared among both straight and gay men. And the, the sooner we see it, the more we can resist, resist it. Uh, and that, it, in my opinion, has very large political implications. Well, because of uh, your, your, your legal background and uh, being a professor, your book has a lot of footnotes, has a lot of research. Uh, it's not sure. just a, a personal history. Um, yes. so, so it really is uh, almost a research book in, in many respects. Would that be a way to describe well, I, it? Well, I think it's about the people, the figures I turn to uh, in my loneliness, you know, when I... Uh, when I felt bullied, you know. So I mean, I turned to, you know, artists who who uh, who, read, who didn't make me feel so alone, like Dickens, because he shows you uh, what it is to be a, an abused boy, or um, uh, uh, or uh, uh, Henry James, what it is to be a gay boy who's who's compelled uh, to live a, a false life, and. Uh, uh, so you know, it's it, it was my when when you were as alone as alone as I was as a boy, you you desperately need alternative models, mm. and in my case, I found uh, I got these models from often reading about these men and later on studying their works and uh, seeing uh, how important it was to them in finding their own creative voices uh, to you know, begin telling their secrets or, or breaking out of the secret self, speaking more honestly about the complexity of their own lives. Uh, and, you know, and in some cases, like uh, James Baldwin, becoming a central figure in the civil rights movement uh, once he was able to come to terms with, you know, his homosexuality and in moving to Europe and experiencing real, humane, loving relationships. Uh, so that seems to, to me... a a very important issue. And, you know, I see it reflected in, in a lot of artists. I also study in this book uh, movies, the movies of John Ford and Clint Eastwood. Uh, and I think it, it, it resonates in the experience of, you know, resisting unjust wars when it came to the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh, and I think it resonates in more recent politics with uh, Obama and, you know, a very uh, a president like Trump, who I think really really depends upon anachronistic conceptions of patriarchal manhood. And that's, I think, very dangerous in a culture like ours. You, you also conversely, or not conversely, but on the other hand, do point out the, the damage that it can do to a woman who perhaps uh, grows up in that, uh, that environment where... Of, of course, absolutely. Yes. I mean, the work really began in the study of girls and women. That's Carol Gilligan's work, hmm. and I think the case is very good. In women's case, it ends up being they're silenced. Uh, they're huh. silenced when it comes to, uh, you know, in, in men's case, uh, it's, it's, I'm afraid, more profound. They really become agents of patriarchy, and they, they think violence is the only 
way to deal with problems. And that's, of course, ultimately disastrous, both in personal life and in political life, well, I in my think, opinion. I think most people can agree with that. Uh, there, there's just yeah. too much of that blustering going on in yes. the world in general, whether, regardless, yes. and, and not just politically, it's just everywhere. Uh, yes. and and on each side uh when yes. when you wrote this uh, you had a, a a target audience in mind i would think someone or people or groups of people you thought would would gravitate to your content and uh, perhaps learn from it uh, in re- retrospect who was that well i think uh certainly women would see the argument immediately but i mean i my hope is that boys and men who uh, are increasingly uncomfortable with the rigidity of American gender roles would, would begin to see that the experience they have is much more broadly shared, uh, and that res- and that you know being able to overcome one's secret self, be, to speak from one's voice uh, about what what one really experiences as a human being, can really liberate them both personally, ethically, and politically. Um, so that was my hope. Heaven knows if it, if it will have that Im- impact. But um, I felt my experience was not unique at all. Uh, although you might at first uh, uh, first you think it, it is because you know I'm, I'm a gay man and most men are not. Uh, but I think the experience is very broadly shared, and men suffer from patriarchy. The wars are largely fought by men. Hmm. Uh, much higher statistics of murder uh, are of men. Uh, you know, they die earlier. There's a whole history uh, of, I think, men. Uh, patriarchy damages men. It, uh, it really it makes them fight wars. And, you know, it leads them into, uh, you know, ways of life which are dangerous um, and stupid. <laughs> and it often, you know, destroys their love lives and leads them into vocations that are hollow and empty. That's a disaster. It, it's a, it's an interesting observation for sure. Now, this book, because it's uh, so many pages, almost 400 and some, you uh, did take some time to write this. It's called a memoir, but really it's it's broader than that. How long did it take to complete? A few years. Uh, a few. It was the easiest book for me to write because really? it was written from personal experience. Uh, and you know, and I really was able to review the influences on my own life as I moved from boy boyhood to manhood. Because you know, I was reading, I was trying. I felt so alone when I was a young man, uh, really essentially friendless. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I was really looking for alternative ways of life, and I found a number of you know very great artists. Certainly, when I was a, a boy, between co- uh, before I went to college, uh, you know, reading uh, 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 Charles Dickens and. Uh, Henry James was like realizing I was not alone, mm. that people had been through this, you know, boys had been abused for a very long time, as Dickens tells us, you know, and it connects to terrible injustice, you know, and and uh, gay men had closeted themselves uh, like uh, Henry James, uh, and, and no one writes more powerfully about the plight of women than Henry James, uh, and I think he's writing once again from his experience as he moved from America to finally finding a home in Britain, a more tolerant environment. That was the nerve of it. It was really, and then once I was able to understand the impact of these uh, artists on my own life, it, I, I mean, the, the general argument uh, moved out from there to other, to you know, philosophers, to Baldwin, from many other artists, and uh, also you know, important political figures. Uh, uh, like James Baldwin, and you know, in a more contemporary spirit, someone like Barack Obama. But Barack Obama comes from a completely 
anti-patriarchal way of life. Uh, he was not, there was no father. He was essentially brought up by his mother and her family. Uh, and uh, uh, if you read his autobiography, it's all about not becoming the patriarchal man that his father was, which he comes to see as very destructive of his father's happiness. Now, that's a remarkable story. He was, you know, he was the president of the United States. Interesting. And a large part of his struggle was fighting against patriarchal assumptions. Uh, and becoming, you know, the humane and learned man he is. That seems to me a very important story for people to know about and absorb, particularly, you know, men to absorb, that a man can, spend, you know, can spend much of his life, uh, you know, without a father, so to speak, and yet finding an alternative way of life, which is rich and humane. You have mentioned this is the easiest book you've written, and uh, even though that might be the case, there may have been, I'm guessing, regardless, there may have been some challenges in writing this, maybe in your personal recollections or or in uh, doing the research. Were there any that were difficult for you? Uh, well, it's always difficult to speak about one's parents, of course. I mean, I had l- really loving parents, but... You know, having to keep a secret from them, uh, namely that I was gay, was very, extremely painful. And, you know, having to refl- reflect on that long experience of silence. When, you know, when, I mean, I really loved them, and they really loved me, but, you know, I could see they couldn't handle it. So you spend a very long period of time not disclosing the most intimate parts of yourself from the people you most deeply love. That, uh, that would, was very painful. That would be a challenge for sure. Uh, this this yeah. book, again, is 410 pages, uh, well-written, uh, well-researched. It certainly covers a broad series of, uh, of topics relating to your life, the title of which, again, is Boys' Secrets and Men's Loves, a memoir. Professor David A.J. Richards has been my guest. Sir, uh, Professor, where can I get a copy of your book? On Amazon. It's available on Amazon. There, and there will be, it's in paper on ad, on Amazon, and there will be an audio version of it, actually, eventually. So very, there very, you have it. Very good. You have uh, 20 books completed to this point. Anything else for the general public that might be released in the near future? Not that, not at the moment. I'm thinking about that. I'm <laughs> resting <laughs> in a cre- creative rest, shall we say. Ex- excellent. Well, thank you for joining me from New York City area today and sharing your background, your story, and the insight into this book, Boys' Secrets and Men's Loves, a memoir. David A.J. Richards has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. Bye-bye now. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six superpowered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled From Crisis 
to Tranquility, a guide to classroom management, organization, and discipline. And obviously, someone who thinks they have a handle on this is my guest author, Sarah M. Robinson. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, good, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon to you. And you have been an educator for a number of years, if I understand it correctly. And uh, this book is an outcropping of your, your history and, and of your passion for teaching. Yes, it is. And how long did you, uh, did you work in classroom settings? Well, actually, it, I, for quite some time, um, I graduated college in 1993 and went on to get my master's in my administration. And um, I've been in the classroom for a little over 23 years from every grade level, from first grade all the way up through 12th grade. Well, com- I've com- been a coach. I've Yeah, com- I've been a principal. Wow. Uh, are you still active as a, um, an administrator or involved in, in classroom work on a personal level? Well, I actually just moved to Montana, and um, I do keep in touch, and I've actually took a year off because I am actually going to write a second book that is putting this all into action with what is written in my first book, From Crisis to Tranquility. Well, fabulous. So I'm taking a year off and using everything that I've learned in the classroom, student stories, um, teacher stories, and how things happen in the classroom, and from this book, how the second book will be how it was implemented from this guide. What what motivated you to write this? I know as a teacher or educator, there are a lot of uh, dynamics in the classroom. I can remember back when I went to school when everything was black and white and we had a path to the outdoor facilities, uh, you know, one-room school. We, we honored and respected teachers and people in administration uh, greatly as I was growing up and in school. That has not always been the case, and especially in the recent dynamics of, um, of education. Uh, is that a, a proper evaluation from my perspective? You know, that is very spot on. And one thing also to include in that, and it's not limited to, um, teacher burnt out. Um, I've had student teachers, I've been mentor teachers, and teachers come into the classroom. For example, I taught middle school last year, and a kid pulled out a screwdriver on me, and I had to talk him down using the skills that I have learned. This book is designed to retain teachers. I've had student teachers who could not, they went into the classroom for the first two years, and because the dynamics have changed, end up leaving and going on to, because they spent all this money in college, and let's say they have a degree in English like I do, they will go and do something else like an editing job, or they will do something else in that field, especially math is huge. So this book, there is a need for it, and um, the experience from working with my administrators, other teachers... I had to develop something. It's an easy read and for to retain teachers in the classroom and reduce conflicts that exist and that rise between parents and administrations and, and teachers, and it offers management techniques, possible solutions. Have you found this crisis, if I may call it that, in all schools, regardless of whether they're in large cities or in small towns? How, how would you describe, is there a difference? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that, because no, not really. I mean, there's a different dynamic, like what kind of car somebody drives to a high school, which I taught. I taught in a Catholic high school. Um, I taught English literature, and they would have nicer cars than I, but I've also taught in Title I schools, and the behaviors are the same. For the most part, it's just a matter of, you know, someone may be more affluent than the others, 
but the behaviors, teenagers are teenagers, kids are kids. Is it social media that's driving this, or how would you uh, evaluate the problem? I think there's a lot of drama dealing with social media into the classroom. That's a whole different different can of worms. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, social media does have a lot to do with it, with behaviors, and it, it, the students lack focus and concentration. And now that the school districts, a lot of them across the country, I did some research on this, are going to Chromebooks and more, you know, technology. You have also in your book uh, outlined, I will call them question and answer sessions maybe for the reader, uh, such as behavior reports and and other evaluation tools for maybe that teacher that's under stress. Was that something that you have used in your administrative career, or is this something that you developed for the book? Well, I have used, <clears throat> excuse me, I have used most of these, which I have created when I first became a teacher because I needed some sort of, um, but some sort of empowerment in my own classroom about how I wanted to do this and what worked best for my students. Now, these are just a guide, these forms. And what is nice about these is that you can take those and reprint them according to what your needs are. Is your book a hundred? Yes, I have used them. Yeah, hundred and sixty-two pages. In that hundred and sixty-two pages, uh, is this a guideline for primarily educators? It is for educators, but it also can be for school counselors. Um, it can be for college students, for school districts looking for in-services or staff development. It is for administrators who can help with school-wide discipline that can go as a guide and helps with teacher aides and other staff members because people forget about the paraprofessionals who don't necessarily have to have a teaching certificate in order to work in a school district. Mm. This is also very beneficial to them, too, because they're not trained as teachers are trained. You go in as a parapro, and you're like, here you go. They do a little bit of training, but there's no guide because a lot of, in my past experiences, a lot of those paraprofessionals are left alone with the student to help them with their studies or academics or behavior. So this also works very well for that. Your book does address a lot of issues, including self-esteem, and I'm also presuming that this yeah. book uh, maybe addresses those special needs students. Not always in special yeah. needs classrooms, though. Would that be uh, correct to assume that? That is very correct. In fact, a lot of the schools are going to an inclusive classroom where there are, for example, I had taught sixth grade a couple of years ago, and I had um, autistic kids, down kids, along with my regular ed kids, a lot of 504 kids, um, kids with an individualized education plan, then I have some really smart, and they're all thrown into one classroom, which mm. makes it very diverse, which is wonderful. However, when you have a kid who's a regular ed classroom kid, and then you have someone who's in there with an IEP or has ADHD, um, you, it can cause conflict within the classroom. This book, From Crisis to Tranquility, is to help relieve some of those behavioral problems, especially with the diversity of, of the students. You've talked about self-esteem and have a self-esteem worksheet. I would presume also that this worksheet might be adaptable 
to the educator himself or herself uh, looking at this and really maybe trying to examine what is my motivation for being in the classroom? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I designed that because of my son. My son was um, has Asperger's and he has Tourette's. Mm-hmm. And we would go and I would fill one out myself and then he would fill one out and we would track it. And so I love that. I'm glad you brought that up because self-esteem is huge in the school districts right now. And that worksheet goes along right with the text, what is written in there and how to fill it out. And and what are the steps from your perspective uh, in problem solving? You have uh, violent students. You have uh, students without parents, students that come from disadvantaged homes. How would you problem solve with these people? For example, let's say a student is disruptive during, let's say you're in an elementary classroom and during small group instruction time, you can stop and remind the student, but a lot of praise, gestures are wonderful, Hmm. Um, especially if a child is, let's say a child's playing with his pencil and he's stabbing the person next to him, you gently take the pencil away and say, you know, you know, when we're ready to use the pencil, I will give it back to you. But it's not making a big deal in putting that child down. Oh, that frustrates me when people do that and teachers do that. I understand. (laughs) But there are subtle ways of doing that. So no wrapping the knuckles with the uh, ruler like a teacher did for me for no reason. I still still regret it. No, and I've taught in in (laughs) private schools. I've taught in public schools. I've tutored, yes. Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm still wondering why that happened, and that was a long time ago. I'm an, I'm an, I'm an adult. Uh, you know, I, just, I, I still don't know why right. I Isn't got that right. crazy? I went to a Catholic <laughs> high school, and my, my mom and dad were actually very involved in, like, you know, school. My dad was a superintendent, and my mom was a special ed teacher, and I, be, I became a regular ed teacher. But they taught me, too, that punishment can be a negative form and should only be used selectively. It has to be used within conjunction with a positive form of discipline, physical, verbal, ignore behaviors um, that you don't want to pull out that other kids can see. But positive consequences are a learning experience for the child, and it's an elimination of discipline problems. You can have a response, a time, the use of voice. So no, no more sitting in the corner with a pointy hat. Uh, <laughs> no, oh my gosh, do you remember those days? <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. Yes, I was not a, I was not the recipient of that, uh, of that punishment very often. But I do uh, think it was uh, adequately uh, expressed in my education. So you, you, right. ha- you have a, a reason for writing this, obviously, to retain teachers and to educate them and to inspire them. Is your book similar yes. to others in the marketplace? Uh, there's a lot a lot being said about education and, and how to resolve Actually, these mine, issues. Mine goes back to the basics. Mine is a very easy read because teachers have so many things that they need to do, professional growth, professional de- development. This is a very easy read, and it doesn't take a lot of time, and it gives hints and tips and everything else. And you, you had said something before I wanted to respond to, sure. and I can't quite remember what it was. <laughs> Uh, did it have well, to do, there you go. Did it have anything <laughs> to do with the pointy? Was it the pointy hat? I don't know if it was that one or no one. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, definitely, yeah. <laughs> I've, I, I've been in situations like that. I have seen a teacher make a student kneel down on the gravel because Ouch. he was misbehaving. Ouch. Oh. That was my first year of teaching. So basically, this is to help a teacher not lose their brain or want to quit or tear their hair out or cry at the end of the day. Mm. 
Because it happens. It's very, com- oh, you were talking about the news, um, the way things are coming out and, and all the yes. discrepancies and the pay and everything else, but the Red for Ed movement. Wow. That's when I decided to finish this book because pe- teachers were walking out of the classroom, mm. choosing not to come back. And when that Red for Ed movement came, that pushed my derriere in full gear saying, you know what, this has to stop. This has to stop. We're losing wonderful educators to being dictated how we have to teach our classroom, the common core, all of that stuff. I just got done with it. I've been very successful. I have students that are now in their 30s with kids that email me. And I know how to, oh, well, so, yes. Well, I guess I would know how to email you, yeah, if they're, if they're younger than you are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in my 50s, so. <laughs> oh, well, con- congratulations on a wonderful career so far. Now, this book, uh, 100 and so, so many, 162 pages or so. Uh, Sarah, how long did it take, and did you work from... I don't know, an outline that you had accumulated or been uh, designing over the years, or how did this book come together? It came together when I was doing my student teaching. I was interviewed um, for a education publishing magazine, hmm. and I was interviewed about using life experiences in the classroom. After my second year of teaching, I almost quit. Hmm. I said, this is ridiculous. The pay is ridiculous. I can't afford to have kids on this pay, et cetera, et cetera. And this is like 25 years ago. And so I started taking notes, and I kept a journal every year, and every day I wrote in that journal about discipline, behavioral, what worked, what didn't work. And so I kind of, you know, just for fun, started writing about it, and then I compiled everything, and then I did my research. I interviewed people. I interviewed teachers. I interviewed students. I looked into Harvard. I looked into the different practices and the different theories that were going on, and I tested those theories out in my classroom. This book is designed what theories had worked for me and will work for most teachers, if teachers are open-minded. Well, it's beautifully done. I think it's a a crisis book that is necessary for anyone that's wanting to be in education or to make a difference in young lives. The title of the book, again, is From Crisis to Tranquility. Uh, that word is uh, very uh, expressive in its own right. A Guide to Classroom Management, Organization, and Discipline. And my author, Sarah M. Robinson. Sarah, where do my listeners get a copy of this and uh, talk about your next book when it's going to be released? Yes, well, I'm actually working on that. It's going to be called From Crisis to Tranquility, Putting It Into Action. This is the guide. Now, the next book, which I'm working on, this is why I'm taking a year off, is while it's still fresh in my brain, Hmm. (laughs) I'm going to take those student scenarios and the interviews and the survey monkey that I had placed out there and take all that and compile all that information and how teachers solve these problems using this book. Beautiful. With real life scenarios. It should be more entertaining (laughs) Uh because there's some stuff in there. Like I had to hold a head together where the brain was coming out. Ouch. I had a kid who was a cutter, not go to the place she was supposed to go to unless I rode along with her. Wow. It's how you deal with the students. Sometimes you have to forget the administration. Teachers run their classroom. This is a guide for teachers to run their classroom. Be for counselors, administrators, which I hope administrators would definitely read this because it it compiles everything and how to maintain teachers and how to retain them and how to maintain organization. Mm. And also, I'm getting how to inspire them to continue and to excel at what they do. Oh, yes. 
definitely, for example, it'll be in my next book. I had a kid with a 2.5 average in my English class. She now has a 4.0, and she got accepted into a it's a, a Catholic school, a private school. Fabulous. It's how you treat those kids. And she's a rough one, no parents. She has a grandma who's been in and out of the hospital. What I wrote in this book are the tools that I used in order to help these kids succeed. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing your story. This is inspirational on many levels, and I'm kind of thinking that a, pa- a parent or anyone that even has a, a, a vague interest in education will want to grab a copy of uh, this or the next book for sure because of the anecdotal stories that are going to be shared in there. Oh, this, it's going to be wonderful. Absolutely. This one, the title, From Crisis to Tranquility, Tranquility easy for me to say, and my author, Sarah, <laughs> with an H, M. Robinson. Do a search under her name online. This will come to the surface as well as the next or any others that uh, that she creates in the future. Sarah, thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you very much, Jay. I really appreciated this time. Honored for Ex Libris on Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker.